Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Welcome back, everybody. I hope y'all having a wonderful one out there. Sorry this episode was a day late in the making. You know how life gets. But this is going to be part two of our overview on eschatology or eschatology 101. If you didn't listen to last week's episode of part one, please, by all means, do. Once again, Tyler is going to be with me in this episode from Brewed Up Apologetics. We talked about premillennialism and a little bit of an overview for the last episode. And this next episode is going to be focused on postmillennialism, amillennialism, and then closing thoughts. Just a little bit of a layout if you weren't familiar with what we're doing. So we're doing the overview right now, and that's going to be two episodes long. And then the next episode next week is going to be our diving into post-mill eschatology, like a deep dive. I'm bringing on my my buddy Blake, better known as E-Disciple on YouTube or TikTok, and he's going to be breaking down what post-millennialism is. I'm going to ask him some probing questions there, trying to stay a neutral party throughout all of these discussions. But it, well, you'll just have to wait and see. It's going to be really awesome, and I'm really excited for how this is going so far. After the post-mill stuff, we're going to be getting into pre-mill. I have somebody lined up coming onto the show for that. And then after that, we move on to ah-mill. So stay tuned over the next couple of weeks, and I hope this has been edifying and enjoyable. Without any further delay, here's part two of an overview of eschatology. So mm-hmm. post-millennialism, once again, we already said it, but that's Christ returning after the millennium. And that's nearly not enough to describe what they actually believe. So we'll dive in a little deeper. Some of the main mm-hmm. tenets of post-millennialism is they will take a certain point really at Revelation 20, and they will say, all right, here is the line, everything prior to this. So Revelation 1 through that specific point, Revelation 20, everything prior to this is the past. This has already happened. It is done. And everything afterwards uh, is still yet to happen. Now, this is known as the preterist view. Uh, and I I caution using, I don't like saying the word preterist because some people will uh, uh, push that with full preterism, which I personally, we'll, we'll touch up on that in the end uh, before we move on to amillennialism. But full preterism, I, I, I and I don't use this word lightly, but I, I do view it as kind of a heresy uh, just because of the certain denials of, of, of the resurrection of the believers and of um, other various events that go on. We'll get into it a little bit more as we, as we talk about it. But mm-hmm. most of them, like, like Blake, who I just recently interviewed, who you guys are going to hear next week, he, he refers to himself as a partial preterist mm-hmm. rather than a full preterist or a hyper preterist. Uh, but this is essentially a preterist view. And what preterist means is literally it's just talking about the past, like things that have happened in the past. So like I said, they draw that line, and this has all happened in the past. You know, the, the, the beast, the antichrist, um, all of this is in the past. Specifically, they refer a lot to history, and uh, we keep referring back to Mike Weiner because we were both watching the same videos, but <laughs> yeah. I'm going to steal another line from him. He, he said it very, very clearly that preterists do a very good job at finding historical evidences for Revelation, most of the book of Revelation being in the past, uh, and especially taking giant chunks out of Matthew 24, where Jesus was giving his discourse going over eschatology. A lot of it is really focused in on that passage and what Jesus was talking about. While a pre-mill will view what Jesus said as being a mixed bag, like, okay, some of this was referring to the past, and some of this is talking about the future. 
for the most part, a, a, a preterist or a, a post mill will look at that as this was in the past. And they'll specifically point to the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem for that. Uh, so a lot of it rests on one, like I said, the 70 AD destruction, and two, the fact that the book of Revelation, and this is what they'll debate, a lot of scholars believe Revelation was written somewhere between the 90s, somewhere in the 90s AD, so 90 years after Christ. A preterist or a post-mill person will make the argument that the book of Revelation was written somewhere in the 60s, uh, usually before 64 AD, because some of the events that lead up, but somewhere in the 60s before um, the 70 AD destruction. They will say the book of Revelation was written then, because they believe John was shown being shown visions of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Uh, if, if you have anything you want to talk about post-mill-wise to add on to that. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that the the clinching point for them is that destruction of the temple and that's specifically because of how they view israel mm -hmm. um because i mean when you think about what's going on in israel that's pretty much whenever everything just it was kind of like a second diaspora like a second dispersion of israel to all these different parts of the world sure that that could very well be what you know what john was saying but I think that there's a little bit too much of a, you know, very, very loose hand with this. I think there, there might be a little too much of a wanting to make the biblical doctrine or biblical documents earlier than what they might be. Mm -hmm. um, just because, I mean, historically speaking, the earlier that we get it and the earlier we can push it back, the more value it has because it's closer to the original point. Mm -hmm. And um, this is, I, but at the same time, I think that they have a really good case for this. Oh, they do. Um, yeah. Because like, if it is apocalyptic literature and it is um, holding to that already, but not yet thing, which they, they seem to be holding. Um, it's yeah, it already happened. The, the, um, but it's not yet fulfilled. Like the, with, with, the destruction of the temple it's yeah it's going to happen mm -hmm. it, it is that futurist or future looking predictive prophecy um it will happen but yeah it's not yet happening and like kind of taking it as like a literal reading of this almost as if you're reading it as if it's happening now but yet it didn't happen yet mm-hmm um, so i think that there's a really good case for that and i honestly i want to push revelation back as early as possible but i also want to make sure that i'm i'm not doing it with very loose ground oh yeah um, exactly and so uh, so while pre-mill side we didn't mention this you know most people that hold to a pre-mill side it's hard to find denominations that really you know mm -hmm. go one way or the other but for the most part most you know i would say most baptists most pentecostals which is strange because they actually agree on something in there you know they would <laughs> they would probably fall in that post mill camp or pre-mill camp and then on the post mill side you typically see a more reformed community uh, mm -hmm. presbyterian such as that uh they would fall more on a post mill side of the house not always the case you do have your some extreme charismatics your your bethels and your hillsongs uh, while I don't believe they've explicitly said it, you could just tell by the way they talk, they have, you know, they hold to a more post-mill theology. And that's typically because one of the tenets of post-mill theology is that the world is going to get better 
and better and better through the evangelizing and the advancing of God's kingdom, which also mm -hmm. has something to do with that already, but not yet uh, mentality yeah. that we talked about. The, the, the biggest, uh, and there's two ways to look at this. You have the holistic view where you can say, okay, well, when Christ's gospel was first being preached by the apostles after his ascension, you know, there was, wasn't that many people that believed. Look at the world now. There's way more believers. So is the gospel mm -hmm. advancing? 100% Christ's kingdom is, is advancing. But then we also kind of look at where the world is right now. We, we almost see us reverting back. Uh, and it's easy to get stuck in this mindset of us looking into the here and now because that's where we are. We're in the present. Mm -hmm. But when we, when we try to place ourselves and look back, we see almost like, okay, the world was getting worse, it got better, and now it's getting worse again. You know, I look at passages like Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where God describes uh, his wrath of abandonment on a group of people that just no longer acknowledge him as God. I see that, I personally see that happening in America right now, in this country. Uh, you've seen it in multiple other places over the world, major, major empires falling. Rome, great example. Uh, I believe Paul was specifically talking about Rome in that, but also applies to other areas. So that, that's one of the, I guess you can say, that one of the tenets that I have a harder time being pushed over to that full post-mill uh, uh, theology is, is that fact mm -hmm. that the world is going to get better when I see signs of it getting worse. And in fact, Jesus even says, and, and you'll see there, there is a rebuttal to this in the, the next episode, but you know, Jesus says that there, there's going to be a great falling away. There's going to be a great falling away from the faith, and it seems to me like the world is going to just continue down this downward spiral. Christ's kingdom is still going to advance. You know, I, I hold to a little bit, I say a little bit, of Reformed theology, uh, mainly, you know, the doctrines of grace, I hold to that. Uh, so I do believe that every single person that God has ever set out to save will be saved, period. Like, there's nothing that's going to stop that. No, no, no plot of man, no plot of Satan, nothing's going to stop that. Uh, but at the same time, the outside world and the rejection is just going to get worse and worse and worse as hearts continue to get hardened by sin more and more and more. Uh, but go ahead and elaborate. I talked a lot on that. No, 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 that's okay. I think you're right there that it is a very optimistic view. Yes of just how we how we are looking at the world like yeah like i want this to be an uphill battle i want this to be um looking forward to that peak of just that theocracy of god literally reigning and he's he's got the he's basically back in his rightful place on earth um that happened before you know we were like no we want a king um like I, I want that to be the case, but just because, and I think this has a whole lot of implications for a whole lot of other things, but just because we want it to be that way doesn't mean that it is. Mm -hmm. Um, especially in our culture now, you know, I going back to the TikTok stuff like, that I do, I do a lot of stuff that does that kind of combats against progressive Christianity and progressive Christianity. One of the things that they do is they base everything on what they want so if what they want, that then becomes their reality. Hmm. So like they create a God of their own mind rather than the God of scripture. This is how I imagine God yeah. to be. So this is the way he is. Yeah. But what does that do? That paints God in our image and it reverses what's said in scripture. So yes, I want this to be an optimistic way of looking at 
at scripture and looking at the world. But just because I want it to be that way doesn't mean that I'm right. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So and like I said, I, I really I, like the whole idea though. I, I I do I do too, and and I do see the kingdom advance. Like I don't believe for oh, a yeah. second that God's kingdom is not advancing. Like like I said, mm-hmm. I, I I'm very big in the sovereignty of God. I don't believe that anything that we could possibly do, or Satan or anything else, will ever thwart God's plan. Uh, mm-hmm. Period. And yeah. I know that's one of the arguments 100%. some post mills like to make with pre mills. You know that it, oh you believe God's plan is going to get thwarted by man? No, not at all. What God set out to do is going to happen. Period. But mm-hmm. I also understand that I, I, do, I just don't see this utopia getting created on earth. And this is where it gets mm-hmm. into the more charismatic side, you know, your Bethels and your Hillsongs. That will, I think they call it a seven mountain mandate. I don't remember all the different areas, but like, you know, it's like politics, media, entertainment, whatever the case may be. And they, be, they will believe and preach that as Christians, we need to infiltrate these areas and through influence, we will be molding and shaping the kingdom of God. And I mentioned Brian Simmons, that passion translator guy, he holds to this, and he truly believes that we as Christians uh, have to set the conditions here on earth in order for Christ's return. That we, mm-hmm. unless we do what we have to do, then Christ won't return. He's just sitting back going, nope, I'm waiting for you to do your job, and then I'm going to return. Uh, you know, And that's kind of the, the mindset of it. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Christ uses imperfect people like us, uh, who was he saved, to spread his gospel. That's the way he chose it. So we do play a part. But no way does my part inhibit Christ's return. You know, there there is a set yeah. date, time, everything that, that only God knows, that we don't know. Uh, and, and I truly believe that, that there's nothing going to thwart that. Uh, and, and God's kingdom will advance as he desires it to in the pace that he desires it to. Uh, so that's that's yeah. kind of one of the faults, like I said, that I kind of see with the post-mill side, that optimistic viewpoint. Now, mm-hmm. bumping on to the, some of the, the merits, uh, we keep mentioning, by the way, if you haven't, check out Mike Wainer's, uh, you know, six different views on eschatology. It's like an hour and a half, two hour long video, but mm-hmm. he does a very good job being neutral and, and, and explaining this. And to steal some of his words, once again, uh, you know, they, these post-mill people do a very good job of taking historical, outside-the-Bible writings and mm-hmm. lining this up with Scripture, specifically the writings of Josephus, which actually got me so curious when I was studying for this. I went through and read, you know, uh, his book Wars, in which he was—Josephus, if you don't know who he is, he's pretty much— a Jewish person who is a historian. He was captured by the Romans, and uh, he was kind of brought in, and he he was there at the 70 AD destruction uh, at the Roman generals. I can't remember his name. I think it was Tiber or something like that. I One of those Roman names. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was there as his right-hand man, kind of writing everything down, scribing as this was going along. Uh, mm-hmm. So he had a firsthand information. And this person was not a Christian, at least as far as we know. He was not a Christian, so he has no agenda trying to Mm -hmm. push, you know, a Christian agenda out there. And the descriptions in which he writes the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem is very, very, the way he words it is very close to what you see in apocalyptic literature inside the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was one of those tenets where I look back, I'm like, whoa, okay, this has some merit to it. Like, this is not some far-flung thing here. 
Yeah, and like as as an apologist, like that I that like speaks to me like holy cow. Yeah. This is wonderful. I love it because it it's an outside source that corroborates what's in the Bible. Um because I, I I'm horrible with Bible references, so I will do as much as I can to not reference the Bible. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um at least like verse and chapter and book i'll probably be like yeah paul wrote this somewhere um (laughs) (laughs) um, unless it's first corinthians 15 i'm kind of (laughs) useless um but yeah so like i yeah like you said this they do a really good job at that and kudos to them that is that is some hard work and they like i think that needs to be commended um because it's not you can't say they don't do their homework at all yeah, exactly. Well, it's easy for a pre-mill to sit back and say, literal, that's it, it's done. You mm-hmm. know, post-mills are busy searching through history and documents and literature and studying their butts off to prove yeah. their point of view. You cannot call them lazy, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but what I thought was really cool about all of this was that Nero, was when they bring in Nero to, or Josephus brings Nero in, yeah, that it's like, oh, that that does make a lot of sense. And, and if you don't know what he's referring to, a post mill will view Nero as that antichrist uh, figure mm-hmm. that the Bible talks about, and they'll they actually have the the the, the they'll take how six six six, which is a number a lot of people you know even outside of Christianity here. And when you take mm-hmm. Neron Caesar in that writing, you know just that name Neron Caesar, and it will add up after they do all the numbers. Uh, you know, it will add up to 666, uh, mm-hmm. which is like one of those things like, oh, wow, you know, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so to kind of like give a little bit of background on that, on the, the six, 666 or 616 thing, yeah. it's like... I'm glad the, you brought up Hebrew, 616. Yeah. Yeah. Hebrew language and Greek, they didn't really have a number system back then. Like that was a later edition. So at, they would basically every letter had a number correspondence or certain numbers had or certain letters had a number correspondence so whenever you would do that correspondence with nero it would either be 666 or depending on your spelling of nero 616 so i think that i thought that was kind of cool i'd never in my life heard about that i just Mm -hmm. thought it was like oh it's just the number of the beast um you'll you'll hear blake actually point out too he's like you got to be careful with the way you say it he'll say that it needs to be read uh, according to the original language, 666 rather than just straight up 666, six, six, uh, mm-hmm. which was kind of an yeah, interesting so like, take on it. But he, he has yeah, all yeah, these like reasons power. why, and you'll hear when you hear that episode. <laughs> yeah, which is, is, is cool. Like, again, this is one of those things that I commend them for doing their homework. They, all of this stuff provides a really, really strong case for this partial preterist view or just the post post mill view in general um but yeah like i think that a lot of the whole nero thing and the destruction of the jewish temple especially from how the preterists would typically view the world and nations i see it like almost like a one-to-one correspondence there Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I just thought that was just kind of cool and like at least worth pointing out, like like the world equaling Israel because that was the world back then. And and I think that was like a. You bring up a good point go that I wanted to, to to make sure that people understood. So while a primo person will see these terms like the world, islands being leveled, um, 
being swallowed up by the sea, mountains being completely taken away, earthquakes all over the world. They, they will view this as a world event because it, it literally says the world. Uh, there's some arguments you can make if you go into the Greek, it could mean something a little bit different. Uh, but for the most part, most people agree it's usually focused around the world. Uh, a post mill will take that and say this is referring specifically to the nation of Israel uh, and that that area around there. It's like the known yeah. world. And that was the known world for them. And honestly, they have backings up in other scriptures where, where that happens, where they will describe the world. It will say the world, but they're obviously referring to specifically Israel and the known inhabited world at that mm -hmm. time. So th there, there, yeah. is, there is an argument for it. Um, you know, in my brain, I, I my pre-mill brain, I do personally see everything uh, happening around the entire world. But like I said, there, there's an argument for that. And it's important, important, <laughs> important to point <laughs> that out, uh, mixing up my words here uh, on, on yeah. that post mill side. Uh, there was there are some pointed questions and, and you'll hear them asked, especially if you're, if you're from a pre-mill side where, you know, how, how do you explain Revelation would say when the, the beast or when the Antichrist, you know, is essentially looks like he's dead and then the false prophet comes in and raises him up and, to, and there's a figure that speaks his words or, or other parts um, of Revelation that just seem very specific in their descriptions to where you're like, okay, this should be taken literal. I, I, I ask specifically, how do you take this? And one thing that you need to understand about post-mill people, for everyone listening, is that they read Revelation and most apocalyptic literature as being very spiritual. So like we kind of we kind of alluded to it earlier when we talked, but when they see something like that, they don't literally see um, a false prophet resurrecting a uh, the Antichrist and building an image of him, you know, some statue or robot or something that, that starts speaking his words. They see that as mm -hmm. some type of symbolism. Uh, Vodi Bauckham, who's actually a uh, Amil guy, uh, because as I think we mentioned it earlier, if you listen to an Amil and a post-mill guy talk the first few minutes, you're going to think they're the exact same thing because uh, they kind of hold that more post-mill view when it comes to the history in the past. But they will they they will say this same thing. Vodi says, like, do you really think he's talking about an angel holding a literal key to the whatever? No, that's a figurative key. And there's merit in that, you know, that, I don't know if they're maybe at the same time I could believe that there's a literal key that some angels holding to go ahead and open up something uh, or when yeah. Jesus is opening up the the seven sealed scroll that you know that is a literal scroll that Jesus will use uh, but mainly that's an important factor to understanding post mill amill pre mill the post mill and amill people will read revelation and other literature as being very mm -hmm. symbolic and spiritual rather than literal yeah which I think that there's just to kind of maybe undergird some of that. Um, if it was going to be a literal interpretation of this is exactly what's going to happen, then if it is a futurist or something happening in the future rather than happening right now, then, you know, I'll just hold up my iPad. He could have been opening up and swiping open his iPad. Mm -hmm. it, but John would have no idea what that is. But yep. what did he understand? He understood scrolls. He understood keys, lock and keys. Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure they had that stuff back then. Yeah. Um, so I, again, this is where I think they do a really good job at taking the genre for what it is. 
um, and using that um, poetic hyperbole and things like that to blow things up. But yet that's just because John would understand that stuff Mm -hmm. rather than this is literally what's going to happen. So that's why, you know, even though I tend more towards the pre-mill side, this is where I want to borrow from the post-mill. Like you, again, you guys did your homework. You, you did an amazing job with this. I just think you have some of the other details wrong. Yeah. And I don't want people to think that post-mill and on-mill guys just take this, this brush and go spiritualize, you know, over everything where they, if they can't explain it, they'll just go spiritualize. No, they they'll Mm -hmm. do their homework and mm-hmm. try to understand what this symbology is and what it actually means and say, oh, it's a spiritual thing, you know, whatever. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's the easy yeah, cop-out like, answer. Yeah, and when you do that, you do end up having certain things like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they're going to take something like that and just hyper-spiritualize it to where it's a very metaphysical thing. Um, like the resurrection for them. The resurrection was 100% spiritual. It was not a literal resurrection. So if you take it to the far extreme, you do lose some of the power. Mm-hmm. But if you take it so far to the other way where it's super literal, you lose some of the power. Um, so I think that there's something in between where there's like a really happy middle that we probably won't ever get to because our own biases are going to get in the way. And I think we just need to be open about that. Yep. No, I, I think you're 100% right. Uh, so jumping over uh, a little bit, I want I want to do define mm-hmm. though the as I talked about in the beginning the 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 separation of a uh, partial preterist, which is post mill, to oh, a yeah, yeah. full blown uh, preterist, or as I call it, a hyper preterist. Um, and mm-hmm. I this definition isn't from myself. I'm pulling this definition up, and I'm going to go ahead and read it because that's the best way to explain it. Since yep. I'm not, you know, like I said, I watched like a seven video series on it. Um, like they were a couple hours long, so I'm not like the world's best, most <laughs> informed person on it, but I have a yeah. little bit of understanding, and this is what it is. So, uh, full preterism it denies the future, uh, the future prophetic quality of the Book of Revelations, the entire Book of Revelation. And I said Revelations; that's one of my pet peeves. Revelation. Oh, me too. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the preterist movement is essentially. They teach that all end-time prophecies in the New Testament were fulfilled at the 70 AD destruction. Uh, that was We already defined what that was, where Rome pretty much attacked Jerusalem. They teach that every event normally associated with the end times and Christ's second coming, the tribulation, everything, even his return, uh, has already happened, uh, and that his return was not a physical one, but rather a spiritual one. Uh, they believe that all of that was 100% fulfilled. And you might ask yourself, okay, Tim, like, what about the resurrection of the believers and everybody for that fact? Because everybody's going to be resurrected at some point. The Bible's very clear on that. All will go through a resurrection, whether it would be to salvation or to judgment. Uh, and this is one of the points where I would say full preterism uh, becomes dangerous because you're essentially, depending on who you talk to, they have different viewpoints, but some will say that this has one already happened or two it never actually happened and this was some you know a spiritualized thing they'll wave the spiritual mm-hmm. wand at that like we were talking about earlier uh some of the main problems with full-blown preterism is is ex- exactly what i said denying that bodily resurrection of believers and saying it already happened and we can see clear on you know i'm a believer 
you're a believer. Uh, whoever's listening to this that is a believer. We are obviously not living in perfected bodies that don't have the propensity to sin. Uh, we are not glorifying God in his direct presence, um, you know, in heaven, the descriptions that are given inside Revelation of what the new heaven and the new earth is going to look like. I, once again, take that to be very literal, those descriptions, and most partial preterists will actually take that as to be literal. Uh, You know, that, that denies that very core. And like I said, Paul actually kind of now, this goes back to when was Paul's letters written and when was Revelation written. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, uh, to the church in Thessalonica, they had a real worry that the resurrection already happened. They were afraid of this. They were afraid that this had already happened and were worried that they missed it. And Paul goes, no, 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 stop. This hasn't happened yet. You didn't miss the second coming. And he pretty much dispel, dispels that entire full hyperpreterism movement with that. Now, once again, a, a full-blown preterist will say, well, that was because Paul wrote his letter before the 70 AD destruction and Revelation, all this stuff. And it's like, okay, all right, well, there you go. You just kind of wave that wand on it. But that that's the yeah. only probably point of eschatology where I will sit there and tell someone, look, you're, you're, you're wrong. Uh, and that's my personal opinion. I know some people won't do that and go that far, but I feel like you're denying some very crucial things uh, when it comes to full-blown preterism. Any, any thoughts on that? Before we move on, um, yeah. I, so, again, referencing Mike Winger. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we should have just had he, him on. That was, yeah. If yeah, that was possible, should, yeah, we should just like <laughs> buzz him in real quick. <laughs> um, but that was my first like exposure to the hyper preterist position, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, it was kind of interesting because I love heresies. Like they're just kind of fun. It's but, fun dispelling them, yeah. Yeah, and it's fun to learn about how how they work, um, because like one of my favorite quotes of all time is from Tertullian. Oh um, yeah, who was a church father and from the I think first century, um, second century. Sorry, um, where he's like basically saying that Satan defends the truth by, or Satan perverts the truth by defending it. Yeah, and um, where it's it's a hyper focusing on one part of truth to the point of where it distorts the full truth. So this is where I see the hyperpreterist doing it with the resurrection um, and denying this very, very crucial thing about Christianity, if not the most crucial thing about Christianity, to the point of it being a spiritual resurrection. But whenever you look at the entirety of the New Testament, if you just limit it to the New Testament and just say that the Old Testament, we lost it somewhere, we don't have anything except word of mouth stuff. Um, it goes against everything else that's been said about the resurrection in the New Testament. So at that point, we can say there is something wrong with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And you need to go check yourself and check your sources, check the Bible. Maybe you need to do some major reconsidering of this view because it is going to have salvation of soteriological effects yes 100 percent. i think that was the perfect uh summary of that so with that we'll jump into the amil section now this is the one i struggle with the most uh Mm -hmm. you know in understanding and when we actually i'm still actually trying to search for an amil person to come on i've actually come across a few that were initially saying they were willing but then they were like you know i thought about it i don't know enough 
Uh, so I'm still <laughs> yeah. I'm still searching for that person to come on here mm -hmm. uh, to explain it. And I really don't want to have to do it myself because I, I won't do it justice. I promise you that. Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, some notable people who believe in Amil, uh, one of them would be would be Vodi Bagum. I know a lot of people uh, who like good, solid teaching, enjoy Vodi's uh, teachings, and he's an Amil guy. And he does, if you ever want, if our explanation is lacking or our future episode is lacking, you can go find some episodes on YouTube where he is explaining it, and he does a very good job of that. Um almost no point in me doing it now, but I'm still going to do it. <laughs> but he does a very good job of explaining what the Amil position is. Now, I will say the Amil, from everything that I've read, Amil, the reason why it's hardest for me is because it is so vastly different depending on who you talk to. And they almost kind of take elements from both. So while Amil is probably more closely aligned to the post-mill beliefs, uh, when it comes to the, the spiritualism of Revelation, when it comes to events that happened in the past, they are also willing to admit that, no, I believe Revelation was written in the 90s. I believe that um, the world is not going to get better and better and better, but rather the world is going to get worse like the pre-mill. So they kind of pull different positions from that side. But I think the one thing that is an obvious separator for Amil from the other two would be that their view of the uh, kingdom and the church, so Christ reigns. So they believe that Christ is currently reigning, mm -hmm. uh, just like the post-mill. But unlike the post-mill, a post-mill would be more willing to— uh, there's some disagreements on where that separation between the church age and the mm -hmm. uh, reign would be, while an Amil person would more likely say that it's kind of all rolled into one— uh, so mm -hmm. if you have anything to elaborate on that, please do. So the the way I view amillennialism is that it's too wide of a brushstroke that we're, we, we don't have clearly defined lines of what's biblical and what's not. Mm -hmm. and, and while we were talking there, I, I wanted to try my best to kind of draw a line to it. So I went to yeah. one of my systematic theology books here <laughs> because they they kind of they kind of talk about it a little bit. Uh, so. I'm going to go ahead and quote here. If you're wondering where I'm getting this from, this particular one is uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Good, good book if you ever want to check it out and just understand uh, different things when it comes to theology. That's going to be a whole other episode talking about systematic theology. Okay. But uh, So for the Amil position, where they pretty much draw the line is that, you know, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 is now. That's the church age. And then you have Christ that comes back. Uh, that's the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of unbelievers and judgment, new heaven, new earth, and then you have the eternal state. So mm -hmm. that that pretty much corrects a little bit of what I said because I, I feel like I didn't do enough justice in my definition. But those, uh, according to this, uh, Revelation 20, verse 1 through 10, describes the present church age. Satan's influence over the nation has been greatly reduced so that the gospel can be preached to the whole world. Um, and that Christ's reign is not a bodily reign here on earth, but rather a heavenly reign. Uh, there is no future millennium yet to come, and Revelation 20 is now being fulfilled uh, in the church age. And the thousand years, once again, is a figurative 1,000 years. Uh, and that was just some of the highlights. There's a lot more that can be said about it. But like you said, I feel like it, it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around amillennialism. Because uh, I feel like they try to simplify it, but by simplifying things and just saying, all right, you know, 
church age, millennium, you know, that's it. Uh, maybe this is the dispensationalist in me doing this, but, you know, I feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions left uh, when you go through Revelation. Because me, like, I see a clear line between how, while salvation works the same way forever, I will always affirm that 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see a clear line on how God dealt with, you mentioned judges before, God dealt with the nation of Israel a little bit differently each time. Um, through through the covenant, through judges, through the ruling of, of uh, the kings, and then how when Christ returned, I really see a line there. And then, you know, you kind of get into the book of Acts and how that's kind of like almost like a transitional book. Everything was kind of new. People didn't understand uh, the difference between the covenants and all these. Uh, if we were in a new covenant, and that's actually uh, one of the tenets we didn't talk about between uh, one of the distinctions. Uh but I see all these different varying lines, uh, and, and mm-hmm. it seems like amillennialism almost kind of wipes that away. And I really wanted to highlight that one last thing, talking about the covenants. Uh, depending if you're pre-mill, post-mill, amill, you're going to view Israel in a very different light depending on how you view this. So a, a dispensationalist pre-mill, for example, would sees a very clear distinction between the handling of the nation of Israel and the handling of the church today, uh, and mm-hmm. that God still has a plan for Israel. Even in the, uh, the, the classic premillennial view, you'll see that. Not as extreme, uh, like me personally. I'm premill, and I do see how God handling the nation of Israel differently than he handles the church, but at the same time, I believe salvation works the same way. I don't believe that the church is the replacement of Israel uh, but rather, I see us rolled up into one, which is, you know, post-mill people will say that. Uh, Blake, you'll hear in the next episode, really goes into that and how most post, uh, post-mill believers get a bad rep for anti-Semitic comments and, and believing that Israel is just garbage and nothing more. But he, he sees it more of rolled up. But me, I see something like R- Romans chapter 11. And Paul's talking about the nation of Israel and how God has a very distinct plan for the nation of Israel. Uh, so that gets into a whole nother topic that we could talk about forever, which we won't get into. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into it when we actually talk about the different views, but we, we won't today. But that's one of the uh, key differences between the post-mill and the amill kind of have the same view on it, but then the pre-mill would have something a little slightly different. Just talking about all of Revelation from an Amil perspective. Um, so they do take a an idealist view of all of Revelation. Um, so if you're not sure what idealism is, so I just did a quick like Google search on it, and it literally is any a, like any of various systems of thought. So our system of thought on the view of Revelation. So that view of Revelation is the object of the knowledge that we're that we're looking at, and it's in some way held to be dependent on that person's mind. So basically, the view of Revelation that an idealist would hold is very much subjective to their own personal experiences mm-hmm. and what's going on in their head. And, you know, there's, like we said before, there's a lot of that with... Um, we're kind of projecting our humanity into into revelation it becomes a little bit more um so like eric mason i'm not sure if you, you're familiar with him or not Mm-mm. um 
he's a pastor in Philadelphia. Um, he just wrote a, a book. I haven't read it yet. I really want to about race and, and urban apologetics and things like that. Um, but he, he was like, yeah, literally just learned a new word. It's called narcissus. Oh yes. I have heard of that word. I know that yeah, usually so, gets attributed to people like Stephen Furtick and, uh, yeah. 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 Where it's very prosperity gospel lead stuff where it's like, you're the object of God's revelation. Um, and you're inserting yourself into the biblical narrative, and that's almost what the idealist perspective does. Is you insert yourself and make it dependent on you rather than dependent on God. And I think that's a really important thing to to remember. Yes, this is apocalyptic literature. There are a lot of figurative language, like metaphors and things like that being used, but that doesn't mean that all of it's like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitions to all of these words and we need to make sure that we keep that in mind yeah that's a it's a that that's a, that brings up actually a really good point and it, it's, it's something that we got to consider because it, it mm-hmm. us as humans do have that tendency to and i do it still to this day and i'm very careful that i don't i try to read the bible in context read before read mm-hmm. after place myself into who the audience was addressing you know that's proper hermeneutics 101 but we still have a tendency of somehow placing ourselves inside that scripture, and we have to guard ourselves of that. And I can mm-hmm. see how, with an Amil viewpoint, that they can place themselves in that area. Now, obviously, I'm sure someone who believes in Amil will refute that and will say <laughs> yep, absolutely will not. And I cannot wait until we actually get somebody who is Amil um, mm-hmm. uh, to come on and talk about it. I know I got one of my buddies. If, if you follow me on TikTok, you've probably seen him around just because the way the FYP works, uh, black doctor, he is somebody who can, cons- uh, considers himself Amil. Uh, but I'm still in talks of trying to get him to come on. He's a little bit hesitant because that's like one of his least priorities. He just doesn't like to talk about eschatology very much. Yeah. But he's like literally my only friend that I have that that that's Amil. So I'm like, and I don't want to just reach out to a rando person who I don't really know or have viewed their content. And I don't want some mm-hmm. heretical person coming on here. And all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, okay, let's not do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If anything, it'd be entertaining. I think that's really good discernment on your end. Um, (laughs) But so I'm I'm hoping he'll change his mind and come on that, or God will show somebody else who kind of holds this view to come talk about it. Uh, But that's essentially the three major views on the millennium now that we've gone over. Uh, Briefly, I want to bring up historicism, uh, which is a type of eschatology that used to be held in the early church, uh, especially around the Reformation time frame. It's honestly not a position that I've ever met, and I don't think anybody really overholds anymore. But it's essentially the belief that Revelation and the Bible itself is continually unfolding. Uh, and it kind of places yourself in that. It kind of goes back to that whole Narciss Jesus thing you talked about. Mm-hmm. It places yourself in that current time. So the Many of the reformers, Martin Luther even, you know, he quoted, you know, saying like he, he truly believed the Pope was the Antichrist uh, and that revelation was unfolding at that very time, that the events that they were in, they see themselves in a very specific portion of revelation. So it was almost like an unfolding of the page turning, if you will, uh, as they were going through life. And I say that it's not held very much very more because, well, obviously we've had multiple events, you know, the uh, the Christian persecution one could hold this view based on the Christian persecution that was going on 
during right after the death burial resurrection ascension of christ you know that was some crazy persecution going on by rome and then the reformers had another way of looking at that because they were being literally burned at the stake for their beliefs by the catholic church uh and so i can understand why they would think this is the worst possible thing ever you mentioned people in world war one world war ii the civil war uh the cold war all these different events going on they can kind of see revelation unfolding uh, and that holds some premillennial context to it. But uh, for the most part, most people will uh, don't really hold to this. And I'm just going to read because I don't have like the most amazing historical background in historicism. But uh, I'll read something that's written about it. Here are some examples of how historicism usually interprets revelation, uh, events in Revelation. So one, the seven churches in Revelation chapter two, verse uh, in chapter two and three, they are symbolic of seven ages of church history, starting with the Apostolic Church, the Church in Ephesus, and ending with the modern-day lukewarm church, which would be the Church of Laodicea. And when you look at it from that point, it'd be like, oh, that can kind of kind of make sense. You know, the seals in 4 to 7 represent the decline of the fall of the Roman Empire. The little scroll given to John in chapter 10 is a picture of the Protestant Reformation. Once again, this is why a lot of people from the Reformation held to this. Uh, the beasts in chapter 12 and 13 represent Catholicism and the Pope, uh, and the other passages in Revelation are linked to the invasion of the Huns, the spread of Islam, and the rise of the modern missionary movement. Uh, so there's some of the tenets of historicism. Very brief, just because, once again, I don't have the expertise to go in depth on it, but I did want to mention that this was a held belief you know, in history at some point in time. Anything you wanted to add on to that at all? Um, so just like, as you were describing it, it really reminded me of Latter-day Saint theology. Hmm. I haven't um, personally studied it too much besides like the whole soul. Uh, no, that's, that's seventh day of Venice. Never mind. Yeah. Go on. Continue. Oh, the soul sleep. The yeah. soul sleep thing. I thought yeah, that's, that, a, yeah. that's strange. That's Very such strange. a strange doctrine, but, uh, but yeah, so like the LDS and they, they hold very high. Like they, um, I have a few friends that are LDS and they're wonderful people. You will never out moral or out good an LDS person. Just don't drink um, coffee in front of them. But yes. un unfortunately, <laughs> um, which I didn't realize they won't even drink. They won't even drink uh, decaf. Um, I even offered them like I was having them over consistently, like through multiple like different like rotations. They wouldn't even like they would not even have like decaf because I think that would just the temptation there would be to, to continue on to regular. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, uh, that was that was surprising. Um, but they hold very tightly to the great falling away, and that that was what Joseph Smith was ushering in as the new church. And that great falling away, then almost like that historicist type of view, where there's a point in time where that happened, and then it's like, oh, we just got to restore the church, and. Huh. It just it kind of reminded me of just LDS how they view the rest of Christianity or how they view Christianity. I don't think that they're they should be considered Christians because they have major departures from the big tenets of Christianity. But even if you look at it from them being Christians, they view everybody else that's not them as part of the great um, apostasy or the great falling away. So it just kind of looks like like 
oh, maybe maybe they hold a historicist view of it, but they just don't want to call it that. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. With, with all that kind of being said, uh, we're going to kind of wrap up this episode now. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we have the next few episodes coming out are going to be deep diving into these points. Post mill is going to be the first one. We're going to have pre-mill and we're going to have ah-mill. And when I say deep dive, I mean deep dive. I already did one interview uh, and, you know, it's irrelevant to you now because you're going to hear it next week. But I already did one interview <laughs> with uh, my buddy Blake, uh, e-disciple on TikTok, and he talked about the post mill view and we talked for about three hours. So I have the task of still editing that and cropping out some things. But oh, uh, I do not <laughs> envy that at all. Yeah, I know. It's going to be a fun edit session. I might have to split that up into like three or four different uh, episodes. So this is going to be something that's going to be going on for the next few weeks, possibly months. So just a heads up, be ready for that. Uh, but hopefully we did justice on just giving you the overall concepts of eschatology and why it's important. Uh, and, and mainly, like I said, two reasons why I'm doing this is because one, I feel like people aren't educated enough on it, that there are different viewpoints out there and they hold their merits. They have merits and yes, they also have flaws. Uh, and then two, understand that there are, this is not a dividing issue. And we kept saying that this isn't a dividing issue. You know, some of the most respected, I'll give you three of the most respected theologians and pastors that I listen to today. Some of them are with the Lord now, uh, but each one holds different views. You know, John MacArthur, he holds to a, dispensationalist premillennialism view. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who is reformed, he holds to a post-mill view. Uh, he's with the Lord now, so he knows the truth and understands what it is. Uh, and then Vody Bagum, he holds to an Amil view. Those three people were very tight with each other. They were, you know, best buds in kind of a way, and they would host conferences and have each other over and agreed on so many things, but they disagreed on eschatology, but that never separated them from fellowshipping and learning from each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's a great example of how we should be today. Um, so with that being said, I'll shut up with my closing comments. You know, Tyler, do you have anything that you want to say before we get out of here? Yeah, no, I, I just I want to echo what you said. I just hope that we did justice to it and, and the different views, um, because this is a really difficult subject. Um, oh, yes. This isn't I, I don't want to say that this is something that we should take lightly, but or that we should not take lightly. This is something that I think does inform a lot of the a lot of the primaries. But we need to remember that they're not the primary. Mm -hmm. Um so if we can keep that in mind as we navigate through the muddy, really muddy waters of Revelation, then I think we'll be on good, solid footing. But just be okay with not understanding it. Oh, yes. And this is honestly... never going to be that way. This is really why... Like, people are afraid to read Revelation. I've gotten comments on that, mm -hmm. even on my TikTok. I'm afraid to read Revelation. I don't understand mm -hmm. it. I don't get what it is. And you, you kind of hit it perfectly on the head. Don't be afraid to read it. Now, you'll hear Blake next week. Uh, he, he actually personally suggests not to touch Revelation until you've done enough homework and stuff. But I'm actually opposed to that. I, I, mm -hmm. I do think, you know, obviously you need to have some understanding in Christianity, but Revelation opens up with a blessing to the reader and it mm -hmm. closes with a blessing to the reader. Yeah. Uh, and I, just that very fact that that's there should be encouraging for you to read it, to study it 
And then two, if you're a Christian, you have absolutely nothing to be afraid of when it comes to the book of Revelation. Uh, mm-hmm. I love that pan mill uh, stuff. You know, some people will say, oh, I'm post mill, I'm pre mill, I'm a mill. And then someone will go, well, I'm pan mill because it's all going to pan out in the end. And I really don't, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's the truth. It really is. And that's the way yeah. I believe you and I both hold this, you know, that it it's all going to pan out no matter what. So don't be yeah. afraid to study this book. Don't be afraid to read this book. Uh, you got to read it before you actually get in there and study it, you know? It, it, yeah, yeah. Read it. Do a study on it. And and honestly, uh, don't just listen to what people like Tyler and I have to say or or Mike Wingner or John MacArthur or Vody Wagner or all these other guys that will talk about it. Read it for yourself. Come up with your own conclusions. Mm-hmm. Pray to the Spirit as you do it that to, to help you understand. You know, I, I always go back to what... John wrote, he said, you no longer need a teacher because you have the Holy Spirit. And that's not a knock on teachers. Teachers are still good because they help us explain things. Uh, But you don't need a teacher, essentially. You have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will help you through this process. Uh, And while we may not understand things perfectly, I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, and I kind of apply that to a lot of Scripture. There are things in the Bible, there are things, in the, uh, especially in Revelation, that we see, and we're not going to understand. We're looking through a muddied lens at this, uh, and it's not making perfect sense. Eventually, though, it'll all make perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think just closing, and then I'll, I'll definitely let you no, take please it from here. take the closing comments. Um, they hear from me enough. So, <laughs> so just in, in like one of the things that I because the podcast that I have when I actually get to it um, does deal with, you know, with the nature of brewed beverages and like the concept of being responsible with things that have alcohol in them. Mm-hmm. We need to also be responsible with the things that we, we learn and we, we read in scripture. And especially with these open-handed or should be open-handed in-house issues, we need to be responsible with them. Because if we aren't, that's when you're going to have those divisive issues come up, and you are going to push people away from Christ because you made a made you made a minor a major. Oh so yes. If we can stick with that and being responsible for all this stuff or with all of this stuff, I think we'll be welcomed into 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 the pearly gates with "Well done, my good and faithful servant." That is the perfect way to 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 put all this. You, you don't turn these secondaries and tertiaries into primaries and push people away. Uh, that is perfect. Uh, so with that being said, I'm just going to leave it at that because I can't really add anything to it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so with that being said, I want to thank you once again for coming on here and doing this. Uh, I was really glad when you reached out uh, to, to come on here and do this overall view. And like you said, I, I pray that we did justice uh to these three viewpoints and people have a better understanding going into the rest of this teaching series because that's what this is this is just a teaching series um and people have a better understanding of it and by all means people i didn't mention it before if you have questions comments concerns uh you can write me email ibnwpodcast at gmail.com you can find me on tiktok at saved by the savior uh, this podcast is also on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you can message us on there if you want to. And if you have any questions for Tyler, once again, Tyler, where can people reach you at? 
Yeah, um, so if you guys want to follow me on TikTok, that's great. My goal is to get to 1,000 so I can do live by the end of March. Um, fingers crossed on that. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want, if you just want to reach out to me directly, um, brewedupapologetics at gmail.com. It's, you know, I tried to keep it all simple with yeah. that and just got to put the little tags on the end of stuff. Um, but yeah, brewedupapologetics at gmail. Um, yeah, that's or just comment on on a TikTok or something like that. We can talk on on there. Absolutely. And that's going to do it for our overview on eschatology. I hope this was edifying for everybody. Stay tuned for next week because we are going to be diving into the nitty gritty of what postmillennialism is with eDisciple, my buddy Blake from TikTok and YouTube. Y'all have a wonderful day.